So here we are in the middle of, uh, of Lent. We're in the middle of our sort of Lent series uh, as we march towards Easter. Uh, the, the point in sort of observing Lent and thinking about Lent as a community is to sort of think, how did Jesus uh, prepare his disciples in terms of this sermon series? How did Jesus prepare his disciples for what was coming? How did he prepare them uh, for the cross? Uh, we have in the, uh, in the story in the book of Matthew this moment where uh, Matthew or where Peter and Jesus are interacting and, and it's like the light dawns on Peter's face. It's like, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, uh, and he finally gets it. And, and then at that point going forward, uh, Jesus begins to prepare them. It's like a, a turning point in the story, a turning point in the Gospels where everything has been ramping up. Jesus' ministry has been growing. He's been healing more and more people. Uh, more and more amazing things have been happening. The crowds have been growing. And his trajectory has been, from, from their perspective, to this massive place of growth and ultimate takeover of the Jewish nation, kicking out the Romans, and all of that sort of things that messiahs are supposed to do. But at that point in the book of Matthew where we look, Matthew chapter 16, the trajectory changes, and he begins to reveal to the disciples that he's about to go to Jerusalem and die, and that he knows he's going to be leaving them, he's going to be sending the Holy Spirit to help them and all of that. So that trajectory begins to be a trajectory of preparation. And as we think about Lent, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at some of those key stories uh, in, in the book of Matthew where Jesus is preparing the disciples. What were the key things that happened there? So that's what we're, that's what we're looking at. Uh, sort of a key idea for us this morning as we look at this text is around voices, around uh, hearing uh, the voice of the Lord in the midst of all of the different things that we hear going on in culture, in social media. How many of you, I mean, we've talked about this a, a bazillion times, right? If you are trying to inform your opinion about the world and what it's actually like through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, are you going to get a clear picture of the world and what it's like? And are you going to get a sense of direction for your life? No, obviously not. There's so many voices there in terms of social media and the amount of information that's coming at us. We talked about it uh, last week, looking at sort of post-postmodernism, looking at digimodernism as this world in which we all have kind of a digital schizophrenia or a digital, uh, uh, just a sense of personalities and everything coming at us in so many directions. So hard to find out what's true, what's right, what's, what's something that's clear uh, for us to rely on. And then beyond that, like in terms of our culture, in terms of our background, uh, we have the background voices, what we grew up with speaking to us. We have the voices of our family. We have uh, the voices of our siblings and, and all of those voices, the voices of our faith, the, the voices of our past all speaking to us. There's just so many voices, so many voices to listen to. Uh, I came across a really interesting uh, technology uh, the other day, just just surfing around uh, the net. There's a, there's a technology for people with peering, hearing impairment called uh, auditory attention uh, decoding. And what that technology does is developed in 2014 uh, by researchers at Columbia University, and they're just beginning to develop it now, is uh, what they do is they're able to take a person's voice uh, from a mix of voices in a room. So if you're in a crowd talking to a whole bunch of different people, what this technology is able to do is it's to actually scan your brain. Yeah, brain scanners on. It's not an attractive technology. So I think it's one of those big helmets, you know, that people wear. Uh, but but their you know, plan is, of course, to miniaturize it. But it's to actually scan your brain to determine what sound you're listening to in the room. And then using uh, artificial uh, intelligence uh, technology to identify that one voice that you're trying to focus on. 
and lower the volume of all the other voices in your hearing aids and let you hear clearly just that one voice upon which your attention is focused. And that's kind of what we need as a culture. That's kind of what we need as people, is an ability to uh, dial down all of the voices that we're hearing to somehow hear the voice of Jesus in it. And, and that's exactly how Jesus is preparing the disciples in this text that we're about to read. He's, he's helping them realize what's really important, how, how important it is to follow him, how important it is uh, to hear him. So let's just read this text, and we'll unpack it together. Matthew chapter 17, uh, verses 1 to 6. It says this, After six days, uh, Jesus took with him Peter. Maybe just zoom out quickly. Remember there at Caesarea Philippi from last week's sermon. Uh, they're at this incredibly pagan place, idols everywhere, worship of Pan, dark place. And so they spent about six days in that place. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. He led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So here we are uh, in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, they're in this place where Jesus is doing ministry. It's a very pagan place. It's a very dark place. And after a certain amount of time there, uh, six days, if we look at the uh, Luke uh, translation, he says somewhere in the neighborhood of eight days. So, so Luke in his translation sort of carries the bookend, the travel days on either end. And, uh, and it says, after six days, Jesus took with him. I mean, I'm sure he's tired from ministry. He takes Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, first question is why these particular disciples? Uh, it's always a good question to ask why Jesus does what he does with who he does. Uh, except that if we're thinking about Jesus preparing his church and preparing his people, we see maybe in the life of Peter, we see the leader, uh, the thinker, the, the head of the organization. Uh, we see James, the hands of the organization. The book of James is the most practical book in the Bible. And we see John. John was actually the youngest disciple. And he was the, the one whom Jesus loved. He was the heart of the organization. So Jesus... Uh, pulled out the closest disciples to him. He took the head of the organization, the church that was to come, the heart of the organization, John, uh, the youngest and longest lived of the apostles, and he took James, the hands-on guy of the organization, and takes just that select group up the mountain into a place uh, to connect with him. And if we, if we wonder what, where that mountain was and what it was, there was a place called Mount Tabor that in the third century most people decided, yeah, that's the place where the transfiguration happened. But if we look at 
at that sort of six-day time period in Caesarea Philippi, we, that was actually probably too far. Uh, if you visited the Holy Land, there will be sites on Mount Tabor where you would uh, sort of be celebrating the transfiguration. But most scholars in our time think it actually wasn't Mount Tabor because as Jesus went up to a place to take them alone, and at that time Mount Tabor actually had a fort on it and it was occupied by the Romans, so they wouldn't have been alone up there. But So what we think he did was actually went to the mountain right by Caesarea Philippi, which is Mount Hermon, the only place where you would find snow, the only place where you can go to a ski hill uh, in, the, in the land of Israel right now. And he took them up uh, Mount Tabor some of the way and took them into that place, a place of, of solitary, a place of aloneness, and actually a really, really unique place in terms of that spot in the geography of the Holy Land where you would actually be sort of standing up on Mount Tabor, and as you're at the top of the mountain, you've actually crossed outside of Israel proper, and you're standing outside of it, looking down on, on the nation of Israel and, and sort of seeing the whole thing in your mind's eye. And so Jesus takes them up to that mountain, to that place of perspective, that place of seeing. And as we look at that, we think that's just, just in terms of us learning to hear Jesus, that those moments are so important for us to take those times where we just pull out and pull away from uh, the busyness and all that we're listening to and to just stand at a place of perspective and look out on the world and just be able to see it uh, through God's eyes. That that moment is is important for us. So they did that. They took that. They uh, they took that space. They took that time. And what we're going to see a little bit later is actually that Moses and Elijah were there. Just kind of a unique little Bible thing to, to tie together. Do you remember Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land? So here we are up on uh, Mount Hermon that is just outside the border of Israel. And that's where Moses can meet with them. It's another thing that, uh, that stu- students of the Bible say that God was just sort of honoring that agreement that he had with Moses. And when Moses was going to come down and touch the ground in the place uh, where, where Jesus wasn't have a conversation with him, it was still going to have to be outside the Holy Land. God just honoring his word to Moses and honoring uh, his discipline of Moses. And, and, and we see some, some real beauty in that, that, that over the long years, God is so faithful. And so they're standing there up on the mountain, and it says uh, Jesus was beginning to pray. In, in the text that we're reading, uh, we don't know what Jesus is doing there. It just says he was transfigured before them. But if we look in Luke chapter 9, we see that uh, he was there, and he was, he was praying. He went up there to pray. And if we look at Luke chapter 9, verse 28 to 29, it says, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became genomai, became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. Uh, Luke, or Matthew describes it a little different. He says it becomes white as light. And that word extapo is like lightning, like bright, like lightning. So just imagine what that's like. Now you're up there with Jesus. You're up in this holy place. And Jesus is beginning to pray. And, uh, and we're seeing that sort of transition, that genoma, that him becoming different. And we sort of imagine it all happening at, happening at once. But I think as Jesus prayed, he just kind of slowly started to glow. And I think that's, that's, that's what our prayer lives are like sometimes too. We enter prayer in places of kind of brokenness or, or depression or frustration or, or angst. And as we begin to pray in the spirit, 
uh, however your prayer life looks. Uh, there's a way in which things get clearer. There's a way in which you, you gain a sense of the glory of God. You gain a sense of the nearness of God. But you don't seem to get that. At least my experience is like that. You don't start praying with a full sense of the glory of God. You have to push through prayer and in time praying, in time connecting with God. And in the moments that pass, it's like the light becomes lighter and lighter and lighter. And we begin to see more clearly. And I think that's what happened to Jesus. He just began to glow. We don't quite glow that way, but he glowed. And, and, and all of a sudden, the disciples are looking at him, and he's just full of light, and his clothes are like lightning. It's kind of like Gandalf in, in Lord of the Rings, but I imagine it quite a lot cooler than that, where, where he's transfigured, he's shining, he's bright. And the disciples are looking at him. Like, imagine, what, what, they, what are they thinking at this point? Like, holy cow, we knew he was the son of God, but now we know he's the son of God. Uh, he, he's transfigured. What's really interesting about this, though, is that you remember, remember in the boat when Jesus calmed the sea? They fell at his feet and, and worshipped him when, they, when, when he did that miracle? He's not, they're not immediately falling at their feet here. They do that a little bit later, don't they? Uh, they, they it's, like they, it's like they're able to watch it. They're able to observe it. Somehow they have some sense of distance from it, and they're able to process some things with Jesus. Uh, and then they fall down later, but we'll get to that bit in, in just a minute. Um, so it says, he peered before them, and, and just there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, when you're a Jewish boy, and you have read the Law and the Prophets for your whole life, and you've got Jesus, this amazing man that you've been following, and now Moses and Elijah show up, like, we're talking about a big deal here. Like, we've got all our ducks in a row. And, and the disciples were pretty excited about this. Now remember, you know, they, this was a moment that they'd been looking for. It's a moment that they'd been looking for prophetically. It's a moment that they'd been looking for as they were sort of wondering what it was like when the Messiah would come. If we go back to the very last words of the Old Testament, uh, this is the words of Malachi. 400 years of silence after these words. It says, remember the law of Moses, my servant. And Malachi theoretically was, was prophesying this from some high place. Uh, over, looking over Israel. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and then the hearts of the children to their fathers. Uh, so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. So we have in Moses uh, this symbol of all of the law, the Pentateuch, all of the rules of God. How do we do sacrifice? How do we atone for our sin? What are the laws that we must obey to gain acceptance with God? That's what's all tied up in Moses. Uh, we have uh, the healthy head, how we live, the decisions we make, all of that. And in the prophets we have this passionate call of God to restore relationship this call to uh, do friendship with God in a new way, this call to repentance, this call to turn from our action, uh, this relational thing that's the healthy heart, that's the horizontal relationship. And so all of a sudden the disciples are overwhelmed. Like We've not only got Jesus, this guy who's been doing miracles, he's looking like Gandalf now from Lord of the Rings, which is really cool because they'd read that book and they thought this is just like that. And, uh, and, they, uh, and they're, they're so excited. Now it's Moses and Elijah and they're kind of glowing too. And they're like, this is fantastic. This is fantastic. Uh, don't you wonder what that conversation was like? 
Like Moses and, and Elijah were conversing with Jesus. What do, you, what do you think that conversation was like? You wish they took a selfie? Might be like a cool selfie, like Jesus, Moses, and Elijah selfie. It probably looks something like that. It's probably what it was like. They were having a pint up on the mountain. There was a little pub up there or something. I don't know. But, uh, but they were there. They were, they, were, they were connecting. They were having a relational moment. And imagine sort of how weird and small the disciples felt sort of looking in on this conversation. I wonder, what, what's it like? How do we know what's going on? Well, we actually, this is another spot where we get detail from the book of Luke. Uh, Luke, Luke says this, uh, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So now we know what they were talking about. They were talking about uh, his departure. They were talking about Jesus' death. But what's really cool about that word, that word departure isn't just uh, Jesus leaving the disciples. That word departure in Greek is the same word that we use for Exodus. The same word for which the, the, that book of the Bible is named, that second book. They came to talk about Jesus with his departure, about his departure. Now, Jesus was about to accomplish something absolutely amazing. He was about to accomplish an exodus, wasn't he? He was about to accomplish an exodus from religion, an exodus from uh, fear, an exodus from death, this incredible exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish. And here we have Moses and Elijah basically coming, now we know, to see him off. Like, Jesus, that's awesome. I wrote those books and those people never listened to them. Like, they're so annoying. Remember when I came down the mountain, Jesus? I'd written these Ten Commandments. I came down and I, and I was going to show it to the people. They were already worshiping a golden calf. I got so cranky. I smashed those things. You remember that, Jesus? That was, like, awesome. Uh, I was so mad, but then God made me write them again. I couldn't believe that. Like, oh. You know, like, like there's this kind of sense of reliving, retelling the story. But Moses says, okay, they couldn't work with this law that I've given. This law has been a curse to them. But Jesus, you can take them somewhere so much more amazing than the law could take them. And the same with the prophets, same with Elijah. I did all kinds of miracles for the people just like you did, Jesus. Uh, but they still ended up having to get kicked out and, and sent to Babylon and and everything, but Jesus, maybe you can you can bring them back. Maybe you can you can take them somewhere better. And and so we get this sort of push off from Elijah. Hey, Jesus, you've got a big moment coming. Uh, we we love it. We we love what you're about to do. We just wanna we just wanna celebrate you. We just want to uh, push you forward. Like Jesus, you're the one. You're you're amazing. It's sort of what I imagine that conversation was like. Imagine now the awe and wonder in Moses and Elijah as they were encountering Jesus. They probably weren't having a pint together. They were probably worshiping him. They were probably worshiping him, right? And so that leaves us with a question. Uh, If we understand that Jesus has brought the disciples there to learn something, to encounter something, to, to understand something, he could have had this conversation alone, but he wanted the disciples to observe it. Uh, what, what he's wanting them to come to terms with is, is this separation from the, the Pentateuch, from the, from the prophets, and this learning to follow Jesus. But he's wanting them to come to an understanding of what their real exodus is as people. And, and that's something that we have to come to, too, you know, as, as believers. As Jesus comes to us and, and, and meets us, you know, really... 
what is Jesus leading you out of? What is, what is the slavery Jesus is leading you out of as a person? Right, he's come to set us free. And some of us have gained incredible measures of freedom. We've gained amazing things in our relationship with him. We've gained uh, so much life and so much love. But, but is your exodus complete? Or is there more freedom still to come for you? When we look at Peter and James and John, that they had an exodus to go through. They had a process to go through that exactly parallels the story of the exodus. Uh, an escape from freedom and slavery through the blood, through the Red Sea. A time of wandering in the desert towards the promised land. And a time ultimately for us to be established in the promised land. But for you, what is the Red Sea that you're wandering uh, through? What is the area of freedom that God is calling you to? Maybe for you it's a simple freedom to be able to worship uh, unashamedly because you've, you've always been self-conscious. Maybe that's just a tiny area of freedom for you. Maybe for you the freedom that he's calling you to is, is a freedom from an addiction. We talk about this often. There's a way that you need to get out of that. Maybe there's a way in which you're bound in a way of thinking or bound in a pattern of brokenness in your life that's been, been holding you that way for a long time time and you're stuck there and Jesus wants to set you free there's an exodus that's for you in what Jesus has done on the cross there's an exodus there's a freedom for you and then the other question of course is where's your promised land where's that place of fruitfulness and beauty and life and fulfillment of a calling in ministry fulfillment of a calling to the poor fulfillment of a calling to whatever it is that God has you so many times we're standing up on mountaintops in our lives and we're looking out uh, from a distance at a place that we want to be a place that we want to get to something that we want to achieve and and, and I think God is calling us just to look at that and find what are the next steps what are the next simple steps on the journey. And so as Jesus observes this conversation and observes the disciples watching, just imagine Jesus like looking at his disciples. They're kind of peeing their pants, but they haven't even got it yet. Right? They're kind of freaking out. But they're learning that there's some freedom for them. There's, they're learning that something is happening. They're learning that major change is coming. And it's not just a change that's a change in the present. It's not just my establishment as Messiah. It's not just me coming as a military leader to kick out the Romans as they still sort of in their hearts believe. But there's a, a change that's coming to their whole way of being that's going to affect uh, the law, affect the prophets, these two major, major things that are in their minds. So Peter says to him at that moment, he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It is good for us to be here. We've got these guys. It's amazing. We've got Moses. We've got Elijah. Uh, if you wish, I'll, I'll put up three tents, one, one for each of you. We can, we can build some circus tents, and we can, we can get some people here. Because Jesus, you're, you're the Messiah. They haven't understood it completely. Uh, you're going to take over. But if you have the endorsement of Moses and Elijah, everybody's going to follow you. Right? This is like the ultimate Jewish celebrity endorsement. Right? 
It's the ultimate endorsement. Uh, there's it's one of the, just one of the great uh, endorsement stories, even from marketing and media that we that we've seen in the last several years, was something I'd put up by Chevrolet called the Best Day Ever campaign. And what they did was they took Alec Baldwin and a bunch of other celebrities, and they transplanted them in universities across the United States with you know people with cameras to film the whole thing. And basically, they they chose celebrities with some intellectual chops that could actually pull it off and had them show up in the classrooms and actually teach history or teach marketing or teach something like that. So 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 that's that's what's what like they're thinking this is this is a power of an amazing endorsement like like we have the the law and we have the prophets we have it together and they're all talking with Jesus. It's all good. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to haul, haul haul some tents up here. We're going to have a gospel revival. We're going to have a meeting. We're going to set this all up and we're going to make some brochures. We're going to get them printed out. We're going to tweet this out on social media and get our Facebook pages humming and Jesus, we are going to get people coming up the mountain. They're going to come and check this out. They're going to check out this incredible relationship that you have with Moses and Elijah and everybody's going to come and it's going to be great. And hey, a few moments later, Peter's going to say, yeah, and by the way, can I be the leader? You know, can, can I be the, can I, can I be in charge of all this? That'd be great. I'm going to set up the tents for you. He, you notice he didn't say, we'll set up the tents. Peter's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to set up the tents. So, so there's something in us that, uh, that wants to, when we have these mountaintop moments, these, these moments of, of closeness, these moments of intimacy with Jesus, there's, there's a way in which we want to just sort of camp out around those aren't there? There's ways in which we want to just sort of live in those moments. There's ways in which you want to just take them and just say, yeah, this is our thing. This is our place. But you know, a true revival isn't about finding a place where the Holy Spirit's moving and, and camping out there. Right? A revival is not about finding a location where the Spirit is moving and setting up a conference center in there. I've been there. I've done that. I've bought the T-shirt, several T-shirts. I actually sold thousands of T-shirts at a revival center. So I've done that one. And that's not to say that it wasn't amazing what God was done there, but... Uh, you know, there's a difference between the way we think about revival and the way we think about the moving of the Holy Spirit. We love to contain it. We love to put it in a place. We love to put it in a box. And, and a true Jesus revival, just like the early church, will always move out. It will be sometimes rapid. It will always be transferring uncontrollably. It will be multiplication because in the spirit of the everywhereness of the resurrected Lord, it has to go out. We are not serving a localized deity. We are serving a God who's everywhere. Revival will always go out, will always go out. And so we just have this tendency as people to just build monuments, don't we? We have a tendency to just build monuments around the thing that God's doing. Uh, To say, yeah, this was amazing in my life. I just want to camp out there. And some of you will, will, will be camped out around monuments in your lives. Camped out. Some of, us, some of us camp out around that moment we were saved, that moment we gave our hearts to Jesus, and we just stay there. And we don't grow significantly uh, spiritually 
uh, from that time and from that place. We don't engage the word. We don't allow ourselves uh, to be discipled. We just celebrate that moment. Or, or others of us have an amazing encounter with the Holy Spirit at some point in our journey. And, and the lights come on and we realize that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us. And he's going to do miracles. And, and the prophetic is going to flow. And, and we've received his gifts. And we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we camp around sometimes a monument like that. But for me and, and for us as a church, and, and it's so tempting to do this because just the gravity of place is so great, uh, we're called to uh, unmoor ourselves, to, to knock down our monuments sometimes. Uh, not that we don't celebrate them, not that we're not grateful for them, but, but to say, hey, Jesus, what's next? And that's precisely what the Lord does to Peter and John when they're saying, uh, and, and James, when they're saying, okay, we'll build some tents, we'll get everybody up here, we're going to put on a big show. We're going to put on a great show, everybody's going to love it. Everybody's going to love the, the Jesus show. It's going to be great. I'm going to be the ringmaster, says Peter. But, but, but with all this in his heart, before he's even done getting it out of his mouth, like, don't you, don't you love it, God? It tends to interrupt us sometimes. It tends to interrupt our plans. It says this, it says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered him. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Now do you remember where you've heard that before? The baptism of Jesus, right? So here's another moment. Now Jesus is baptized in the cloud, right? He's baptized in the kingdom. Do you remember what we're talking about? The kingdom of God over the last several weeks, the kingdom that's in the atmosphere, the kingdom that's all around. Uh, but, but God just comes in this bright cloud. Now imagine, this is the point at which Peter actually is, is tripping, right? This cloud surrounds him, and we remember the cloud uh, in the temple where the priests couldn't even stand to minister. A sense of the presence and the nearness of the Holy Spirit. It was so close and so bright, and this voice comes and says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And God, uh, we see in a few moments, takes Moses and Elijah away and says, if you're going to just build up tents for these guys and worship them and camp out around them, then I'm just going to have to take them away. Because there is one thing that I want you to see. And there's one voice that I want you to hear. And that's the voice of Jesus. I want to tell you just a, a story about... Uh, uh, a woman, a, a Hollywood star named Dolores Hart. Uh, Dolores was uh, was a really famous uh, actress. Uh, the way, the reason I, I heard about this was through an HBO uh, movie uh, called uh, "God Is the Bigger Elvis," uh, just a documentary on this person. Uh, Dolores Hart was uh, an actress uh, from 1957 to 1963. Uh, she was she was famous. She grew uh, a big career. She did 19 holiday, Hollywood movies. She co-starred with Elvis Presley, with Warren Beatty, uh, George Hamilton, Robert. Wagner, all of these great names who had these incredible uh, long careers. Uh, she's a lifetime voting member still of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. She was a, she was a big deal, this incredibly uh, talented, beautiful uh, young lady who, who got to star in all of these amazing things. In uh, 1963, she was engaged to an architect, wonderful guy named Don Robinson. 
And she came to a point in her career where uh, she was so busy and doing so many movies and traveling so much and encountering so much wealth. She came to that place that we talked about earlier where sometimes we just have so many voices in our lives. She came to that place, and she came to a place of, of kind of burnout, of, of kind of tiredness. And, and a friend came to her. She had a Catholic background, and a friend said, why don't you just go visit, uh, visit a monastery? It's up in Connecticut, and you can just go there for a few days and, 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 and be quiet and rest and, and maybe get healed. And, and Dolores Hart did that. She went up to the, the, uh, the nunnery and uh, the convent and, and just had a time of rest out in the woods and, uh, and, and, and was rested and, and went back to her life. And she resumed it. And she resumed for a short while her relationship with this architect, Don Robinson, and, and they became engaged. And then when she was preparing for a movie called Francis of Assisi, uh, she actually met Pope John uh, the, uh, now i got to work on my Roman numerals, 23rd, uh, in preparation for her role in that movie. And, uh, and what the Pope said to her uh, when, when, she, when they were having a conversation uh, about all of that, uh, they're saying, because uh, she was playing Claire in the movie, the two characters in Francis' story are Francis and Claire. Uh, if you want to read the, some of those early writings, uh, there's some real beauty there uh, for us. And, and she said, I'm Dolores Hart, I'm the actress who's playing Claire. And the Pope said to her this, he said, uh, tu sei Chiara, in Italian. He said, no, you, you are Claire. You are Claire. At that moment, she began to realize that she had a different vocation than being an actress. Uh, that she was being called out from that place of busyness, being called out from that place of the many voices, being called out from that place of hearing uh, uh, so many things, of wealth, of cars, of stars, of Hollywood and all of that. And now, uh, in, in, at the end of 1963, she entered that abbey. Um, and now she is actually the, the mother of the Abbey. She's the, she's the mother superior of the Abbey. These many years later, she's Mother Prius, uh, Prioris Dolores Hart. And she's actually the only nun uh, to be a voting member of the, the Academy of, Award of Arts and Sciences right now. But she came to a place where she had been hearing the many voices and, and, and she realized that she had a vocation to hear one voice. And that's where some of us are in our journey. Now, I'm not expecting that all of you will go uh, to, uh, to monasteries or uh, to nunneries and, and uh, give up all your lives to, to do that. But I think for every one of us, we have an exodus from the voices to hear the voice of God. An exodus from the many voices, the many influences to say this is the one I'm listening to. I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn to create time, to create space in my life in a new way to listen to Jesus. And so when the disciples heard this, they, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. Now the cloud was here and they were scared and they were terrified. And that's where we're at sometimes when we think about laying down all of the influences in our lives. Uh, laying down the voices, like even, even prophetically, I, I know there's, there's people in this community who uh, hear a voice of, of a loved one or of a person who says to them, no, you shouldn't go to church, you shouldn't be involved in that, you shouldn't invest your time in that, give your time and attention to me. 
I know there are people who have uh, habits in their lives that constantly call them and say, no, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. Don't give your time to Jesus. Uh, Sometimes that's our money, and sometimes that's our wealth. Uh, Sometimes that's our our careers. Uh, Whatever it is, there's things that are calling us. And when we think about leaving those things, when, when God touches them, when the cloud comes, when he puts his hand and obscures our view of all those things, we too fall to the ground and are terrified sometimes. We become scared. We become overwhelmed. We become frightened. But here's the, the amazing deal. I think in the compassion and love of Jesus, we get to have these moments where he says, uh, and comes and comes and touches us. That's what he wants to do with us this morning. He wants to come uh, in your terror of leaving whatever it is that God is calling you to leave. He wants to come and just touch you on the shoulder. Maybe kick you. Maybe he gave him a little boot in the side. I don't know. But he wants to just come and touch you and say, "Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid." And when you look up from what you've left behind, all of the influences, all of the voices, all of the religion, whatever it is that is the thing that you are having an exodus from, when when the cloud dissipates and you look up from your fear, you'll see nothing but Jesus. And that's the dream for all of us, to see Jesus. To see Jesus. Let's stand. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come in this room like a cloud. Come into our lives like a cloud and obscure everything that we want to camp out around. Obscure every monument we want to put up. Obscure every voice. We would hear your voice calling us to listen to Jesus. To see uh, the Old Testament, to see the law through the lens of Jesus. To see the prophets through the lens of Jesus. To see our past experiences through the lens of Jesus but then to hear the voice of Jesus leading us into our promised land, leading us into the kingdom. Would you call us to the kingdom, Jesus? In a radical way, call us to your kingdom. Prepare us to simply be followers of you. No one but you. No one but you. Come, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, just speak to each of us. Show us where we've been hearing the other voices and where we need to hear you.
just a sense that some of us have monuments and tents that we've set up even around places of our pain. And we allow those voices of past experiences. I know that's been a pattern of mine as well where uh, I take an area of pain, an area of hurt, and I've let that inform my decisions and my choices. Some of you that have a profound moments of pain that, that have been the voice speaking to you, have been a monument you've made, and Jesus wants you to just lay it down and to walk in freedom and follow Jesus. Some of you that have built monuments, built identity around addictions, and said, this thing's just always going to be with me my whole life. I, I just have to be stuck with this. It's just where I live. It's where I dwell. And God smokes it all with the cloud and says, listen to the voice of Jesus. Risk following him again. Risk following him again. For some of us, an area of spiritual growth that was amazing that we experienced at some point. And, you know, and every moment of, of, of a sermon, every moment of a teaching that you heard, you filter through that experience. Does that match up with that amazing experience you have? The Lord would say, that was amazing, but what's the, the next thing that you're called to learn? Lord, we just want to be people of the journey. Just like your disciples, like you're preparing them, we just want to be people who follow you. Set us free, Lord Jesus, to follow you. Let freedom reign. Let freedom reign. I want to close it off, and I hear the kids stirring, but there's a sense of the Holy Spirit's presence still. So let's just, let's just dwell in it just a little longer. Do the work that you want to do in people's hearts, Lord. Is there anyone here who has just not felt like they've ever heard Jesus speak? Just encourage you in this silence to just trust that Jesus will speak. Maybe it'll be a word or a scripture or a picture, an image, a song that he drops into your heart, but in this safe space where the Holy Spirit is present as where he's speaking. Give words. Amen.
Lord, energize us, fill us with your spirit, and send us out uh, to be hearers of your word, doers of your word, followers of you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.